Skull Rock Podcast is brought to you by the generosity of the following companies. Sure, sound extraordinary. To podcasters, recording musicians, and streamers who are looking for studio quality audio at home or on the road, the Shure MV7 Podcast Kit is a premium all-in-one solution inspired by the legendary Shure SM7B and is designed to address the versatility required by modern creators. For more on the Shure MV7 Podcast Kit, visit Shure.com, S-H-U-R-E.com, or click the link in our show notes. Shure, sound extraordinary. And by... The Old Mill Press, publishing beautifully crafted books that illuminate our world. To learn more, visit theoldmillpress.com. And by listeners like you. Hey, it's me, Brett Iwan, the voice of Mickey Mouse. Oh, boy. And you're listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Skull Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney. With your hosts, El John Go and Dave Bossert. Welcome once again to another episode of Skull Rock Podcast, the show about all things Disney and pop culture. Every week, we take you behind the scenes of some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, as well as what's streaming, what's playing in theaters, and what's going on in the universe of entertainment. I'm Al John Go, lifelong musician, Disney, Star Wars, Marvel fan, pop culturist at large. You can email me, aljohn, A-L-J-O-N, at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossert, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to the Skull Rock Podcast. If you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. You can also like and follow us on Facebook, X, formerly Twitter, Instagram, (laughs) and LinkedIn. You can also email me at dave at skullrockpodcast.com. Aljohn, how are you this uh, fine October day? You know what? It falls in full effect and the ragweed is out, and my voice is shot. I just uh, played a gig over the weekend, the 80s tribute. And, was it uh, outdoors? It wasn't outdoors. It's at a place called the East Side Bowl here in uh, Nashville, greater Nashville area. And it's a great venue. A lot of people, of course, showing up for this 80s tribute. We, you know, But I, I just blew my voice out, so... Yeah, I can I can certainly <laughs> sympathize with you. Um, yeah, it's fall here in Los Angeles. It yeah. was 102 over the weekend. <laughs> oh my god! Oh yeah, yeah. I love sweater uh, weather though. I mean, it's sweater weather here, and it's great. And uh, I tell you, what else is great is the fact that we have a very special guest for today's show, Dave. You know who it is? I I, I have no idea who is our guest. Well, today. Our, today's guest happens to be award-winning <laughs> author, filmmaker, and all-around great guy, Mr. Dave Bossert. Oh my gosh, we're <laughs> gonna have him on air. <laughs> yeah, I'm for shocked. Real. <laughs> for no, real, that, that, that's awesome. No, I uh, every once in a while, Al, John, and I do a show together, and this is one of those shows. And we're gonna talk a little bit about my House of the Future book. Oh man, I can't wait to delve into that. It's a uh, what a great book. Uh, I highly recommend it. Anybody that's really interested into uh, the minutia and all the really great details put in to uh, what is one of the uh, coolest attractions at the Disneyland uh, from back in the day, I will definitely love, love this book. So uh, looking forward to that. Plus, you ended up doing some really cool things over the weekend, too, right? Oh my gosh, it's just been uh, it, it's been crazy because I spent uh, all Sunday at the Disneyana Expo. 
uh, down in Anaheim, a awesome. stone's throw from Disneyland. Yes. And uh, and it was a great show. You know, uh, I always see lots of people. Uh, it's great when folks stop by the table to say hi. A lot of folks saying they're loving the Skull Rock podcast, awesome. which uh, just makes me feel great. Uh, and of course, you know, getting suggestions on topics and, and things like that. So and you know us, we always follow through. Absolutely. You know, it is the season of Dave here at the show. Uh, not only are you uh, getting Dave on every podcast imaginable, if you're a Disney fan, you know, you're going to hear Dave talk about this new book, um, The House of the Future, but also talking about the Nightmare Before Christmas 35th anniversary book. Uh, that 30th, is 30th, 30th, I'm sorry, 30th anniversary book uh, that hits, uh, that's already in stores. I was going to say hits the stores. No, it's already out. Uh, we, I feel right. like we've been talking about it uh, for for a minute, and uh, it's finally out there for people to go out there and get. So uh, do yourself a favor. Get both of Dave's books uh, for the season of Dave happening right now as we speak. Oh, thanks, Al yeah. John. I like that. Absolutely. You know what else I like? I love these sound effects when they work, and it's not really working right now. So let's just pretend it works. Um, let's talk about our picks of the week, Dave. What are we watching this week? Well, you know, over the weekend, I did manage to squeeze in a movie uh, on Saturday. Uh, I saw The Exorcist Believer from oh. uh, Universal and Blumhouse. Uh, I like um, that. I like the sound of that. I love the trailers and, and, for it. And, and, and you know me, I'm not a big horror uh, person. No. Uh, but but I, I, I kind of went to see this begrudgingly with my friend Rick because uh, there wasn't much else out there that I wanted to see. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was Dumb Money, which is playing in theaters, but I kind of looked at that as a, it's like a TV movie. I'm going to watch that when it comes on a streamer. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, uh, if you want to get the, the crap scared out of you, go see the exorcist believer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> of course I do. I do every week, Dave. And, and I, and I will tell you, I haven't watched a whole lot on the small screen, but one show that Nancy and I have just been hooked on is Yellowstone with Kevin Costner. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that's easy. Uh, I hear, hear great things about it. I have not seen it, it yet. It, it was on our list, and uh, we started watching it on Peacock, and we've binged two seasons. Oh, really? Wow. Yes, we did. We were watching nothing else but Yellowstone. And wow. I will tell anybody who's listening if you haven't seen Yellowstone, which is playing on Peacock, check it out. It is a excellent show, an absolutely mm. excellent show. I love the cinematography. You know, it's shot in uh, Wyoming uh, and uh, Montana, mm -hmm. and it is absolutely beautifully done. Mm. Um, and it's a great cast of characters. You're going to see some familiar faces. Um, you know, I, I, at one point I said to Nancy, this is like dynasty or Dallas yeah. from, you know, 35, 40 years ago, yes. uh, you know, uh, except really well done. Oh, I mean, much better than those <laughs> okay, shows. All right, all right. Those shows were like nighttime soap operas. Yes. Th this is this is just beyond that, you know. Okay. And uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. 
Kevin Costner's terrific. The entire cast is terrific. So check that out on Peacock. Uh, and that's it. That's all I did this past week. It's just been so busy. I haven't had a chance to do much else. Right, right. Well, there you go. Well, I've been able to do a few things between, um, you know, wood shedding and practicing all my 80s guitar riffs, you know, uh, for this weekend's show, this past weekend's show. I did watch a few things. Of course, the Ahsoka f- uh, s- uh, season finale was on Disney Plus this week. And wow, uh, I love the entire series. I thought it was great. Uh, there's a lot of different high points for me during the series, but this uh, series finale seems to. Uh, I, well, first of all, Dave, did you see it? I did not. So don't okay, blow I it won't for blow me. It. It's good. All right. It's it, good. It, tie, it ties it all together, right? Of course. It ties it together. And it, does it leave us hanging? It leaves us wanting more is what I'll Excellent. say. Excellent. That's, That's what we right? want. That's what we want. So I, I feel like I could watch a, another season right now. I cannot wait to see what happens to these great characters. So, and a lot of surprises, by the way. Okay. And then uh, I listened, you know, I, I do have this commute of our listeners know I, I commute into work and uh, I, a few days ago was Eddie Van Halen's, um, um, you know, a remembrance of his death. I, I call it's almost like a national holiday for me as a guitar player. Yeah. Uh, Eddie Van Halen, we talked about on this show when he passed a couple years ago. And I wanted to hear more. And I realized I have not read Sammy Hagar's uh, memoir, Red. So Sammy Hagar, as you know, is the second singer for Van Halen who led the band into the stratosphere with a string of multi-platinum albums uh, starting around 1985, 86, 86 with 5150. And of course, do you, think uh, he was, do, you, do you think he was better than David Lee Roth? You know, that's a question I get a lot and I will just say they're different. There are okay. literally two sides of the same coin. You have David Lee Roth was literally the swagger and attitude and Sammy Hagar was definitely the song crafter, um, you know, kind of like that rock and roll angelic voice, you know, just kind of one of a million voices. And I will say they're just two different. Uh, and they okay. were two different band experiences, really, for me. And uh, but honestly, uh, growing up, I never saw David Lee Roth with Van Halen. I only saw David Lee Roth as a solo artist. Okay. But I did see Van Halen multiple times uh, with Sammy Hagar. And it's always, I always felt like Sammy Hagar is like the, hard rock version of uh, Jimmy Buffett. He is an entrepreneur. He is, you know, very intelligent, very wild in his early years. And it opened up my eyes to what it was really like behind the scenes with the Van Halen brothers. And um, I'll say that it's a great read, especially if you're fans of music and definitely fans of Van Halen and Sammy Hagar. Um, but it does shed some interesting light. And I'm a lifelong Van Halen fan, Dave. I started listening to Van Halen back around 1983 um, when my friends brought brought uh, brought me over to their house and turned on the vinyl records and put on my headphones and really opened up a whole new world for me. Lo- uh, you know, put on a Goodbye Yellow Brick, Brick Road uh, by Elton John and then Van Halen. I was like, what is this? And they soon became some of my favorite bands and uh, Sammy Hagar was definitely one of those and and I think people will like it if you're if you're into the into the hard rock scene it it, see, it seems like when Sammy Hagar went into Van Halen uh the band really sort of stepped up uh to another level they certainly uh, did uh, yeah. in in both their songwriting 
and performing. Mm-hmm. And and I always was under the impression, maybe I'm wrong, but it always felt like David Lee Roth uh, was was bigger than his britches, so to speak. Oh yeah. And and, and when he went out on the solo uh, uh, career, it wasn't quite as hot as yeah. Van Halen. Well. The, the Which name, is often the case, right? Well, it, it is the case, and I, I think, I think, the the heart and soul of Van Halen is the Van Halen brothers. You know, right. you had the uh, blistering guitar virtuosity of of Edward Van Halen mixed with, you know, literally one of the greatest drummers in in rock and roll history outside of Led Zeppelin. You know, Alex Van Halen. You know, and yeah. Keith Moon. If you if you put uh, Ringo Starr, Keith Moon. And um, John Bonham and Alex Van Halen, those are like the Mount Rushmore of rock drumming right there. Right. You know, and, uh, and and you could do the same with Eddie Van Halen. He is one of the greats. You can put him on a Mount Rushmore with Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page. And, and there you're, there are, I mean, fight me on it. I, you know, I, I, anyone fight me <laughs> on it for, for rock and roll. Um, those are kind of like the, the Mount Rushmore and you have the Van Halen brothers in it. And so, um, and then Sammy Hagar is in a, in a whole world of his own. He is a, a great solo artist, and it, it does go down with his early career and his his fight with, um, you know, his uh, his lifestyle and uh, his marriage uh, falling apart um, due to his infidelity and and being away and touring, you know. So it does go into the nitty gritty, but uh, I think uh, fans will definitely love it. And of All course, right. uh, yeah, and of course, Dave. You know, it it is the season of Dave, but it's also the season of Halloween. Uh, that coincides with the season of Dave. <laughs> so I've been doing uh, Halloween movie rewatches on my Instagram. People will take note. Uh, it's kind of like my thing that I do every year with my wife. And so here are some recommended movies for this week. The Menu, uh, starring Ralph Fiennes, which I've talked yeah, about that, on this that show. That came out last year, didn't it? It came out last year. I love it. It's a horror yeah. comedy. It's dark. It's great. Sleepaway Camp, which is a uh, schlocky 80s slasher film with a big twist uh that is kind of like one of the classic slasher movies of the 80s it's definitely uh, recommended by me the rest of the series could just take a dump uh russell crow and the pope's exorcist we talked about a few weeks ago i really like this movie uh i am you know a, a, a catholic myself a former catholic i don't practice anymore but um it's always great to see kind of uh the religious take on ex- the exorcist as you saw the exorcist and this as, with Russell Crowe as you know, the older uh, Pope's exorcist is, is a really great film um, more because of Russell Crowe's performance. Uh, he really carries the film and his sense of humor is permeated through that. So it's just really neat. And then one of the newer uh, horror films that I believe is going to be known as an all time classic um, for this era of horror that we live in today is talk to me which is basically about a modern day seance gone wrong um that uh that ha- draws a lot of parallels to uh drug use in, in drug culture in america which i think is interesting and then i also saw the latest saw um we hadn't talked about this before <laughs> but i saw saw x with the wifey in the theater and as a, f- a big fan of James Wan and the, the entire Saw franchise of films, this is a return to form, a tour de force. I really, really, really enjoy this film. And um, I'm glad they made it. It's kind of like a, a sequel prequel because it happens in between 
I believe the second and third Saw movies or the first and second Saw movies. So they go back um, and it's kind of like, you know, in the 80s, Dave, we had these big action heroes uh, or even like a Liam Neeson taken, you know, you did this to me and my family. Now I must have my revenge. You know, I love the taken movies. It's a great stuff. Well, this is taken, but done in a horror way. Um, you know, the, the titular character, um, you know, the guy, the jigsaw killer, um, has cancer, goes down to Mexico. He tries to find this miracle cure he heard about in his, uh, um, his kind of cancer survivors meetings and, you know, uh, cancer cope meetings, right. Finds out about this miracle cure. They totally have been ripping people off with this, uh, shady shenanigans that happened down South of the border. He goes there, spends a ton of money to try to get this miracle cure to save himself. And they're ripping people off. He finds out they're ripping people off. And now he's going to exact his revenge on them. All right. And so it's kind of, um, um, I would not say it's, um, it's kind of a, uh, anti-hero movie. So I think that's anti-hero revenge film, anti-hero revenge film. And it's good. It's satisfying. Uh, it's satisfying for me and it's great. A return to form for saw. So okay. that's kind of my big review for this week and uh, more horror movies to come in the weeks to come. And I can't wait to hear your take on the exorcist because I'm going to plan on seeing that as well in theater. can't wait. Well, you know something I, like I said, if you want to <laughs> get the, the crap scared out of you. Okay. But you seem to like that. I, I really uh, do. You know, I really I do. Mean, this, look, the, this is the time of year where all these movies are coming out. Yeah, that's you know, true. Saw X, you know, the Exorcist Believer. I think the Nun, what is it? The Nun, nun is out. Yep. Nun I, 2 I, we is talked out. about the Nun 2. I mean, yep. you know, it, it's October. This is when they want to put all these horror movies out. Uh, it's the right time of year. It's a season of screaming and let the screaming begin. That's what I say. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know. You're just like, whatever, Al John. Whatever. Rock Podcast. This week in Disney and pop culture. Oh, man, Dave. Pop culture's fallen apart. Walt Disney Pictures in-house VFX workers vote to unionize under the IATSE. 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 And there you have it. The VFX The International Association of Theatrical Stage Employees. And why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what this means for everybody? <laughs> well, you know, something I, I, I think this was just going to, uh, you know, this is a rolling thing that's happening. Uh, you've got, um, you know, the Marvel VFX uh, artists had uh, also unionized. So this was, you know, this was just going to wind up happening, you know. So, I, I, I mean, the, the, this is the, the year of labor. You know, yeah. 2023, the the summer of labor, the the year of labor, if you will. Uh, you've got uh, you know various groups unionizing. I mean, it's not just in in film, uh, but also uh, we, you know, and the film industry is mostly unionized. So this is just you know newer groups uh, catching up. Uh, I think, and you know, especially with with the robust technology that's uh, available where you could do special effects shots on a desktop and home, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, more power to them. Well, there you uh, go. You know, collective bargaining. There you go. I think, uh, they've been working really, really hard in the industry. I think for all films, not just, uh, Disney and Lucasfilm and, and, and Marvel studios all under that umbrella, but you know, VFX is a huge, huge thing. 
Uh, I was just watching a documentary, Dave, this week about why VFX are being used so much versus practical effects. And they went back and they did an A and A B um, comparison with The Shining. Uh-huh. And in Stanley Kubrick's film, the hallway scene where the elevator uh, hallway fills with blood was done right. practically. Yeah, but of course, um, you know they were they were really worried about how that went down because they only had one take to do it right. Luckily, they did it right. But uh, you know, of course, the director sat home because he was so worried that it wouldn't go right and was just eating him up inside because of the immense cost, the safety, and all these other things that I hadn't even thought about in regards to VFX. And oh, yeah. they literally redid that whole scene and did it just as good for Ready Player One and uh, to really good things. I mean, you know, one thing that about the performance, and I, I'll just go into this because it works into this this topic, but, um, you know, what is it? Shelley Duvall in the original Shining had to have her reaction cut into that sequence. So you didn't really know if that sequence happened in front of her that was real or if she was just hallucinating it. And this is true. Like, right. I, I never knew if that scene was real or meant to be real. So I thought it was all hallucination, really. And yeah. um, and I, apparently that was just because of the safety issues involved. And I had no idea that, you know, that that was a factor. But yes, those are those are the things that are a factor. And CG makes it so much easier and more cost effective for the drivers. A- absolutely. It's not only cost effective, but you can do things that you really couldn't do. You know, you can take a building down that you couldn't do practically, you know, um, on, on a scale, you know, so, so those films like earthquake, uh, um, uh, and, and uh, I'm trying to, uh, 2012 uh, and stuff I, like that. All yeah. These you know, there, there's a bunch of them, but, but of course, you know, being able to do green screen in a studio and then put in all of these explosions and collapsing buildings around people is uh, so much easier. One of these days uh, we'll have and to safer. Yeah. yeah, well, one of these days we'll have to go into it, Dave, because you have extensive, um, you know, experience with VFX, uh, having done them for Disney for so long. Um, yeah, but you know something, you know, the kind of uh, special effects that they're doing today in live action is beyond me. You know, <laughs> I mean, I, I I've been I've been out of the industry for what like eight or nine years. And, uh, and and the advancements they've made have just been staggering, you yeah. know, and I enjoy it. I'm, I'm enjoying it when I go to the theater and, you know, I go to the movies every week practically. So uh, it's great to see it. I think people are really, and I understand, you know, people being super hypercritical about VFX and, and visual, visual effects, but uh, I really haven't, I've only seen several different egregious visual effects and i'm like oh gosh can you spend more time on it um but i think overall uh it really lends itself to um to the immense storytelling that's going on these days yeah so um hey how about this disney's discounting child tickets at u.s parks as industry attendance lags this is a limited uh amount uh, of time they're doing this at the disneyland resort dave um they really need to keep the turnstiles moving i didn't realize that it was uh, attendance was down so low yeah. And, and you know something, I think this is a reflection of the economy. I think, you know, there was a fairly robust summer uh, of people traveling elsewhere, you know, people going overseas. I think there was an overhang from the pandemic. 
yeah. uh, 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 people wanting to just get on the road and get out of the country and go, you know, go to Europe and wherever. And uh, and so, you know, of course, if you're if your attendance is a little bit soft, the way to boost it is to lower the ticket prices or to do some kind of discounting. And I think there was also a backlash uh, because they were a bit too aggressive. And and even Bob Iger admitted that the company was too aggressive in uh, raising prices at the parks. Well, so, yeah. you know, hopefully, hopefully things have plateaued for a little bit and they're not going to be raising prices and folks can catch up to this. Well, it says starting here, according to CNBC, starting October 24th, parents can purchase t- t- tickets for children uh, from three to nine for the California based Disneyland Resort for as low as fifty dollars each. And uh, I think it's a great deal for families. So go out. Oh, there it's a, it's a big savings. It's a big savings, guys. Big savings. So enjoy it while it lasts because it'll only last for a few weeks. Of course, yeah. attendance is low for Universal as well as Six Flags and SeaWorld as well. So uh, hopefully the theme parks can bounce back like uh, the rest of us. I, uh, I'm hoping for a really great holiday season. Another big headline for Disney this week is CAA, you know, the big talent agency. Uh, Disney sued for allegedly enabling sex crimes by Harvey Weinstein. Uh, Dave, this is... Um, uh, I hate to say, you know, the the other shoe is dropping when it comes to their relationship with Harvey uh, Disney. By, uh, by I, relationship. I, I had, yeah, I, I was actually surprised that this hadn't dropped sooner. Uh, but I, I I thought that there would have been some somebody or or several people coming out of the woodwork uh, and suing uh, Disney Miramax uh, CAA. Uh, well, not, I, I, honestly, I, I didn't even. Uh, think of CAA, but I was just thinking Disney Miramax um, uh, over Harvey Weinstein's uh, behavior. Uh, And, you know, uh, here we have this uh, Julia uh, Ormond, uh, who is suing uh, CAA, who represented her, Disney and Miramax uh, over Harvey Weinstein's behavior and the fact that she was assaulted. And, you know, this was filed in New York. Uh, and they filed it uh, while uh, there was an extension for victims. Uh, there was a law passed in New York that extended um, uh, vi- victims' rights, essentially, to file lawsuits uh, beyond the statute of limitations on, on these things. Mm. So not surprising. Uh, you know, I think the, the Harvey Weinstein story hasn't ended yet. There, there's just still more repercussions and it's really sad. Yeah. And, and by the way, you know, most people, most people in the industry, most executives in the industry, they were aware of his behavior, mm-hmm. you know, it's reprehensible, you know, and, and by the way, you know, the, they're generally aware of people's bad behaviors uh, and they turn a blind eye to it as long as they're making money. And Harvey Weinstein, you know, I often said he would not have been charged with anything if he was still making billion dollar movies. You it's, know? Yeah, well, that's that's hard. That's hard because there are people that fall into those camps of power and it's mm-hmm. the power dynamic with work or in, in this case in Hollywood that a lot of people end up being quiet because they won't work if they're blackballed. And we've yeah. seen it happen before many, many times you speak up about somebody and it happens at work as well. You yeah. speak up about somebody and you're fired. 
you know, exactly. you're, you're fired. You're not working again. You, you've besmirched this industry. You've besmirched this person that has a higher status than you. And, and that's the whole power dynamic. You know, uh, some people don't report uh, these types of uh, essay things uh, to their superiors because it's a boss or someone else with that power dynamic. And if you want this job, you're going to have to be quiet. And that's, uh, that's wrong. So, Hey, it, it, it happened. It happened with Harvey Weinstein. It happened with John Lasseter. Sure. You know, I sure. mean, they, they turned a blind eye for many years to his behavior and, uh, and there were people who left the company because of it. And, uh, you know, uh, eventually, uh, you pay the piper, mm-hmm. you know, eventually, karma kicks in and all the bad behavior comes back on people yeah. and uh and it ju- it just is the way of the world the way of the universe john anyway Lennon. yeah john uh, Lennon said it, it best instant karma is gonna get you that's it that's it all right uh speaking of someone that is uh the, this guy is legendary and uh i grew up watching him uh dick butkus legendary chicago bears linebacker turned actor dies at the age of 80 uh, according to the Hollywood Reporter, he went from savage on the field to sweet on the screen, appearing in Miller Lite commercials, My Two Dads, Hamburger, the motion picture, and so much more. Um, he just seemed to be like the coolest uh, uncle, grandfather figure, uh, Dick Butkus. But what a, what a what a mean guy on the gridiron, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, when he was on the field, they referred to him as ferocious yeah exactly <laughs> I mean, you know and uh i wouldn't want him charging at me no not at all <laughs> but but i actually uh i actually enjoyed him uh in some of those movies yeah you know, i thought i thought you know he here was a great athlete who who actually transitioned very well into acting i remember him fondly uh from that short-lived series my two dads uh with mm-hmm. paul reiser and greg Evigan. With teenage daughter Stacey Keenan. That was one of my favorite shows. I thought Stacey was so cute back in the day. I had a little little crush as little Al John had a crush on her. But uh very, very cool indeed. And of course, he was also in Hamburger the Motion Picture uh as well, which is um a school for prospective fast food franchise owners. So definitely check that out. I do remember watching that as well. Those are great eighties uh tidbits I don't remember me. seeing that movie. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it's yeah. Good, good times there. Hey, look, they are not all Oscar award winning films. Okay. <laughs> the, they're just fun pop culture movies. Entertainment. 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 It's a good way to waste a good hour and a half, 90 minutes of your time. And uh this is tragic, Dave. Uh the last in our regrets for this week. Um Shauna Turpic, I believe I said her name correctly. The Mandalorian and Ahsoka costume designer dies at the age of 56. Three, this is very sad. Very sad. Three-time Emmy nominee, also worked on the book of Boba Fett. She literally is, I think, one of the secret weapons that new Lucasfilm uh, under Disney has because her costumes are absolutely amazing. And she was only 56. Um, she had uh, unknown. She passed away of unknown causes in the Palm Desert Wednesday night as her daughter uh said to a hollywood reporter um but she was one of the preeminent science fiction costume designers a creative force if you will uh in the industry and a beloved member of the star wars lucasfilm family oh dave so sad Just ter- terribly sad terribly sad and uh, yeah I, I i don't know what else to say about this i mean it's like when you see somebody go in their 50s that's just you know it's it's incredibly sad and you know she was extremely talented uh i agree with you 
the costume design in all of those shows uh, that she worked on uh, was just absolutely fantastic. Top notch, top notch. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the dude, Disney plus star Wars series, you know, like him or don't, you got to respect the VFX, the actors, and of course the wardrobe and the sound and music, but um, it's absolutely amazing. Now, a uh, series creator and of course showrunner Dave Filoni had said, quote, Shauna had a deep love and appreciation for Star Wars. You can see that in every piece of work she did with us. She loved everything about being a part of these stories, including connecting with fans and being a part of that community. I feel like she's always been a part of Star Wars. Her costumes tell a story, providing a suggestion of life experience, what happened before the cameras rolled. I love collaborating with Shauna, and I will miss her presence. Uh, it's yeah, very, very sad. Very sad. All right, Dave. Now we get to the... Piece fantastic of the week. new guest fantastic it's new fantastic. guest <laughs> first time ever on the show on skull rock podcast <laughs> award-winning author all-around good guy and filmmaker dave bossert is our guest here as we talk about his brand new book right here on skull rock podcast let's do it become a supporter of skull rock podcast with small monthly donations to help sustain future episodes for just 99 cents a month you can do that just like Lindsay and Joshua. Thank you so much for your support of our show. Be sure to click our link to support the show at SkullRockPodcast.com forward slash support. Skull Rock Podcast. Interview time. Well, here we are, gang. Yet another great interview with a, ce- a celebrated award-winning author, filmmaker, animator special effects guru and all-around great guy and also professional ninja welcome to the show our co-host dave bossard everybody oh well john it's so nice to be on the skull rock (laughs) podcast as a guest i know right my gosh the tables have turned uh i tell you this book is wonderful let's check this out the house of the future walt disney mit and monsanto's vision of tomorrow by david a bossard um this is great. You can pick this up now. We're going to have links in our show notes. It's available at your finer bookstores, also at the oldmillpress.com. Dave, why do we have this book? Of all the different topics you could have chosen, why is the house of the future the topic of this particular book this year? Well, Al John, it's got to be evident by now that I pick topics that haven't really been explored in depth. Um, and you, you can see that from like my Oswald, the lucky rabbit book. It's the only one on Oswald, the lucky rabbit for the Walt Disney produced and directed shorts, the 26. It's the only one, the Kem Weber furniture book. It's the only book on the Disney, um, uh, animation furniture. So, you know, I tend to pick topics that really haven't been covered and it's really out of pure curiosity. And for me, the one attraction that I had always wanted to see and I didn't have a chance to was the house of the future at Disneyland. It was only there from 1957 until 1967. I didn't go to Disneyland in California, uh, until 1980. Right. You know, I, I grew up on the East Coast. Um, I actually had been to Disney World a couple of times in the 1970s um, as a kid. Uh, and so, you know, it wasn't until 1980 that I actually got to see uh, Disneyland where it all started. And so the fact that I couldn't see that uh, attraction 
and I was fascinated by it. I was fascinated by the pictures of it. And I was fascinated by some of the little bits and pieces that I read over the years about it. And, uh, and so for me, it, it just seemed like a natural topic because I knew that if I tackled it, I knew I could dive into it and really, you know, get into a lot of the backstory and uh, find a lot of the material uh, that that's been kind of lost to time. Uh, and so, you know, I really just wanted to take a tour of the house of the future. And if I couldn't physically do that, I wanted to try and come as close as possible in an immersive book. I really dig it. The details are phenomenal in this book. And as you, as you talk about this book, uh, for the uninitiated, you know, and it, it seems like we have such a great fan base. These, our listeners are super educated. They're big Disney fans. They're big fans of pop culture. I think this is not only a combination of pop culture and Disney, but if you were to describe this house of the future to someone, maybe they're just discovering this show for the very first time uh, in a paragraph, how would you describe this, this house? Well, this was a vision of what a uh, house would be like uh, 30 years into the future. This is, this is what the architects, the designers had envisioned uh, what a house, a futuristic house might look like, uh, you know, back in the mid 1950s, what it would be 30 years from now. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, it really was the, the whole project was funded by Monsanto, their plastics division. They wanted, they wanted to see how, uh, home building could change with this miracle material plastics. Absolutely. So, you know, this home to me uh, really kind of embodies that whole Jetson Star Trek aesthetic. And you kind of mentioned that um, with the creation or the, I guess, the concept of this particular house of the future. Um, but when I think about that, I really think about kind of the, you know, the mid 60s, um, getting into the whole space race, if you will. But I, I really didn't know um, how early in development this house actually started. Um, you know, as Walt Disney and Disneyland came into fruition and launched, you know, this wasn't a uh, an attraction that initially opened with the park, did it, Dave? No, not at all. In fact, uh, we've talked about this uh, on our show. Um, uh, the The fact that Walt got Walt uh, got Disneyland open is a miracle in and of itself. Um, it, he uh, had every obstacle possible uh, thrown in front of him, including uh, some uh, uh, labor issues, uh, construction delays. Um, you know, they, they were uh, trying to get this park finished for the opening in July of 1955. And uh, Tomorrowland admittedly was like the thinnest of the lands. It had the least amount of stuff. And it's also the land that is the most difficult to maintain uh, as far as relevancy goes uh, in, uh, uh, in, in any of the Disney parks because of the fact that it's, you know, uh, if, if you go to Adventureland or Frontierland, you know, you're kind of 
looking backwards a little bit. Um, you're uh, creating things uh, that are uh, just acceptably, yeah. yeah, they're they're acceptable and they're different mm-hmm. uh, and they're historic. Whereas Tomorrowland is the future, and the future is always changing, yeah. right? And so once they build something, it's almost outdated. Yeah. You know, so um, anyway, uh, once the park did get open, it was an instant hit and people were coming in droves, which meant that there was cash flow, which meant that Walt could actually start doing things that he really wanted to do and not have to worry too much uh, about the finances because the money was flowing. And, and and so, of course, they were going to go into Tomorrowland and do some things. And the fact that Monsanto independently had funded a research project on using plastics in home building at MIT, the MIT School of Architecture and Engineering, um, uh, they came up with this design that essentially was all man, you know, man-made uh, and materials. And, um, and, and, you know, the most natural place to put it uh, as an attraction, as a walkthrough, an exhibit, however you want to classify it, uh, was Disneyland. And Monsanto's CEO at the time and Walt Disney both had a relationship. They were friends. Monsanto was already a sponsor. They had the Hall of Chemistry at the entrance to Tomorrowland. And it seemed like a natural thing to put into Disneyland. And it was also something that Walt didn't have to pay for. They're right. You know, it's like name of the game. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't have to pay for it. Yeah. So this attraction uh, had a soft opening June 11th of 1957 and and opened the following day, a couple of years removed from the opening of Disneyland. So when Walt got together with Monsanto and we want to showcase plastics and how it can be used in home building how did monsanto get with disney and the imagineers is that how this collaborative effort were was to uh, kind of pull this off and kind of come up with a concept and, and see what was actually practical in terms of building yeah you know walt walt went to a plastics convention um in uh i think it was on the east coast uh and uh that that was really where he got to see that model uh of uh of this new home design and uh and and i just i'm just uh I, I want to be accurate here when I when I describe this, but it it was at the um, uh, it it was the seventh national plastics exhibition at New York's Coliseum in 1956. Boy, and they had, and they had yeah, that was a mouthful, and I really wanted to make sure I I said it correctly. Good, good, good man, uh, good man. <laughs> but. but but in the book, there's a couple of pictures of Walt with the model uh, of uh, the House of the Future. And, uh, and and this is a beautiful, uh, fairly large size model. Uh, and by the way, some people have asked, does the model still exist? This particular model, the only thing that uh, uh, remains of it that I'm aware of is one of the bents 
which oh. each wing of the house was made up of uh, four bents, you know, two up and two below yeah. that attached at one end and then attached to the center core. So one of the model bents does exist at the MIT Museum. Uh, but, you know, to to see this, it's very futuristic for that time period. And of course, you know, uh, putting it uh, at the entrance of Tomorrowland w- was just a natural. And when they came to an agreement that, that it was actually going to go to Disneyland, Walt assigned John Hench, Imagineer John Hench, as the guy in charge of that project. Of course he did. Um, yeah. So as as they put this home together, the concept, um, very futuristic, these bents, you know, if you were to picture this home for the, once again, the uninitiated, right? This is an auditory podcast. Um, it looks like just a, a plus sign. You know, you said it, you had the it, middle, it, right? Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, I was going to say, it's if you're looking down on it, it's like a plus sign. Uh, but if you're looking at it from a distance, it looks like a cloud. It's it's yeah. floating. Yeah. It's floating above the ground yeah. because the 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 living space is actually hanging off of a 16 by 16 foot core. It's amazing. You can imagine that. <laughs> it's amazing. You know? Yeah. You know, it's 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 interesting. I mean, this this core was the foundation of the actual home. And that's where they put all the plumbing and everything in there, all the kitchen stuff, everything was like basically built around that core. And then they put the wings on the side, you know, giving it that floating, the floating look. And yeah. it's, um, and, and I was thinking to myself, boy, it is futuristic. It does look like kind of like a cloud city, you know, like a cloud house, if you will. And it's just, just really uh, just kind of very futuristic. And, uh, I like the fact that they designed it so that sunlight could penetrate every room of the home. It's very cool. Yeah, it, it was very cool. And, you know, the center core housed uh, on the ground floor uh, uh, underneath in the foundation. It had all the utilities, as you mentioned. But on the ground floor, it had the kitchen and it had both bathrooms. There was the the kids' bathroom and then the parents' bathroom. Bathroom, and you had one wing was the children's room, one wing was the parents' room, one wing was the living room, and the other wing was sort of a family room. How many square foot feet is this, Dave, of livable space? It, it's it's about tw- a little over twelve hundred square feet. So I actually do the comparison of this. Um, uh, in the book, uh-huh. I, I talk about the fact that uh, it's not that much bigger than some of the um, like e- each wing isn't much bigger than a cruise cabin on one of the Disney cruise ships. Yeah, right. Now, does that make sense? Yes, it does. I mean, it's a stateroom, <laughs> y'all. It's a stateroom. Yeah, you know, and I, I look at it, and it is a very unique um jetsons inspired I, I keep on saying that because it's you know one of the very few things that we can kind of draw upon you know that star trek jetsons look into the future the late 60s into the space race we mentioned before but um I, what i found is that there was so much molded fiberglass uh in the aesthetic like the bathroom i gotta talk about the bathroom the bathroom is so unique because it's like one 
you know, people have these molded fiberglass tubs and showers and things of that nature in their house, but everything was connected. So the sink and the bathtub and the toilet, like it was all one piece. Like it was crazy. But you know, you know, what's really cool about that though, is that most people in their homes today Mm -hmm. have a, uh, a completely fabricated uh, shower tub enclosure that's made out of fiberglass. And so that's one of the important advances that came out of the design of this house uh-huh. was was to be able to sort of use this material, this this plastic epoxy fiberglass material to uh, create these uh, uh, pre-manufactured pieces that go uh, into homes. Right. So that was one advancement. If you look at like, you know, I mentioned the Disney cruise line, but any cruise ship, the bathroom unit is completely fabricated uh, and put together really as one piece that's lifted into the ship during construction for each room. And then they just hook up the plumbing and electrical kind of slid in like the contemporary resort there at Walt Disney World. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and I and I think, you know, I think what was important about this was the fact that plastics were in their infancy. And I, and I and I really have to stress the fact that, you know, some people sort of, you know, frown upon Monsanto, don't have a high opinion of the company because of all the things that have happened over the decades. But at the time, you know, this was new material. This was something new. Right. And and with anything new, there's unintended consequences. You know, we're experiencing it today, Al John, mm-hmm. with artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Right. We don't know what that's going to do 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Right. It, it could be really good or there could be really bad side effects to it. Yeah. You know, we, we don't know yet. And I think this is what happened with fiber, uh, with plastics and fiberglass back in the 1950s. Everybody was excited by this new material. It had great strength. It could be used for so many different things. And if you look around your home today, if you look around just your car, there's so much plastic uh, that we interact with throughout our day. It's it's crazy. You know, so, you know, the fact is, is that they were looking with great excitement and great vision as what they could do with this material to upend home building. The bathroom, I really, I really appreciated that, you know, the the molded uh, fiberglass bathrooms and, and things of that nature. The the kitchen is one that uh, I really enjoyed looking at those great detailed photos, Dave, you've included in this. And the kitchen is definitely a, a wonder kitchen, if you will. Uh, what was the name of that, uh, the kitchen, uh, the atomic? Um, it, it was the Adams for Living kitchen. Adams for Living. That's right. And yeah. So Adams and, for and Living, it's very minimalistic at first, but then everything kind of comes out and slides into into place. So you have like a, a hidden microwave and you've got all the little cabinetry and the dishwasher kind of popped out of the Island and just different things. It was really cool. 
and they had three separate refrigeration areas. You know, they they had your regular refrigerator, you had a, a freezer area, and then you had uh, the area for irradiated foods. You know, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, it was pretty wild. And then you know, the other thing that was very cool in the original uh, design of the you know when when the attraction opened, when the walkthrough opened. They had uh, an ultrasonic dishwasher, which also doubled as a storage space for your plates and stuff like that. But the ultrasonic dishwasher used a cup of water. Now, as I was writing about this, I thought to myself, with all the droughts going on and water shortages, and and that's going to continue to be more frequent in the future, it seems like you know, these, this is a technology maybe they should go revisit with, with the updated technology we have today. Could they make an ultrasonic dishwasher that would be just as good as the dishwashers we use, but uses so much less water? Yeah. It's something that they talked about in Star Trek, the sonic shower, um, yeah. because they reclaimed all their water in the Starfleet, the Starship vessel. So that, so that it's very interesting stuff there for sure. Um, the kitchen is something else. The The living room is fascinating to me because the living room really has so much technology that we take for granted today. Back when it opened in 1957, I mean, uh, you had the, the, the TV and the console and this awesome looking modular furniture that kind of had these great swooping lines and some of that... Uh, you know, post uh, or that mid-century modern art deco look to it that that is actually all the rage now. I, I sound all the rage. I sound like a the <laughs> I sound like a there's a great big beautiful tomorrow <laughs> from, from Great Brothers. <laughs> all the rage down there at the boys uh, getting a sarsaparilla. Yeah. But uh, yeah, tell us about the living room and how cool that was. I, I thought the living room was one of the more fascinating rooms in the house uh, because of the furniture. Uh, and, uh, you know, they were using, uh, furniture pieces that were designed, you know, one of my favorite pieces in the original, uh, living room, uh, is the coconut lounge chair, oh, yeah. which was, which was designed by George Miller, uh, excuse me, George Nelson for the, um, uh, Herman Miller, uh, furniture company. And, you know, Herman Miller is a well-known, uh, furniture maker. They're still around today. And the coconut lounge chair, believe it or not, is still available from Herman Miller. Uh, and I just love that chair. I'm going to get one, one of these days for myself. Um, it's, uh, it's a beautiful, simple design and it looks super comfortable, um, uh, there was other furniture designers and, and this again was an area that there was really nothing written about the furniture in the yeah. house of the future. Yeah. You know, mo- most people, you know, just went for the low hanging fruit, you know, of most of the stuff that was known, but I actually went in and did a lot of research on the furniture pieces and found out who the designers were. Um, you know, what, what the thought process was, you know, the, the coconut lounge chair, um, George Nelson was inspired by a, a, a cracked piece of coconut shell uh, <laughs> right. to, to design that seriously, you oh, know, yeah, and, that's awesome. and, and, and so, you know, it, it's amazing what the inspiration was for some of the furniture pieces and, you know, uh, 
we, we should mention that the house had uh, multiple um, interior remodels. Oh, they, yes, they, yes. they had updated it a number of times. And uh, and so you mentioned that big flat screen television. It, it was a big flat screen television that didn't work. Right. You know, but the concept of having that large flat screen, what do we have today? Everybody's got a large flat screen in their house. That's right. 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 And they're, and they're just going to keep getting bigger until people have like a wall sized television. Yes. Yes. What, but you could, you could do that today if you wanted it. Um, yes, absolutely. But you know, that, that coconut lounge chair is amazing. It, it really looks cool. And I really like, I think in one of the remodels, you posted a, a photo of the sofa that had that adjustable back. Well, that was in the, in the original, oh, that was in the, original uh, one. Okay. the, the, the back bolsters uh, uh, could swing from one side to the other. So uh, you could configure the, the sofa any way you wanted it, uh, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I really like that. sofa a lot. And, and the other interesting thing about the sofa was that it was, um, uh, it, it was, uh, on a wooden platform. So it almost looked like the sofa was slightly floating above yes. the, uh, the carpet. I love that. Know? I love that. I, I love that aesthetic. It's so, so cool. Just the little things and the, the artistry and the engineering put behind it. Um, future technology. We talked about the TV um, being realized there and all these different appliances, but how about the, the very first video phone, Dave? Uh, the very first video phone, yes, AT&T, uh, had done it. Be by the way, before I go off of the living room, I did, I oh. have to mention okay. a, 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 the, um, uh, reversible coffee table top. Oh, yes. I loved that when I discovered <laughs> it and I thought to myself, why don't they make something like that today? It's so they? cool. You could flip it over and it just all of a sudden changes the look of your living room because you went from white to black or maybe you could get it in different colors. You know, yeah. I, I just really loved it. Anyway, I just I wanted to mention that. Surely, um, they, surely they could bring that back if they haven't already, because I feel like. That is something that you could just change uh, as your mood dictates. It's it's just really cool. It doesn't take anything to just flip that over. Like yeah, a, you know, what like a ping pong uh, table? You know, you just flip it over, and now you can. Make I, a table. I, I just thought it was. I, I thought it was just a really cool piece, and uh, I'm surprised. Like I, I, I would love to see like West Elm or you know, yeah. uh, you know, restoration hardware or somebody come out with a version of something like that. You know, exactly. They should. They should. Um, but getting back to you mentioned the video phone. Yes. Um, it was a prototype video phone um, and uh, it didn't work. Uh, but the idea was that, you know, and I have a picture of a woman talking to, uh, you know, the housewife model talking to her butcher through the video phone and selecting her cuts of meat right from the comfort of her home. Wonderful. You know, wonderful. And, and, and and I thought that was really neat. There was also in the house you could, um, uh, you know, the homeowner could be in the bathroom and could see if somebody came to the door, rang the doorbell, the homeowner could see who was at the front door. Sure. And, you know, all of that stuff is available today with, you know, the ring doorbells yep. and, you know, wireless video systems and stuff like that. Yeah. But 
but back then this was this was totally futuristic and you know uh amazing yeah i mean there was a built-in phone with a speaker you know with a speaker put to it there was like a, a nice you know conference phone and they had and i love the aesthetic of it you know it's it's so cool and then they had the the intercom system in between the different rooms and things of that nature. Yep. I mean, that was just unheard of back in the day uh, yeah. doing it. So you, you we went through the different rooms in the home and every, yeah, Dave, go ahead. Yeah, and I, I was going to mention we should should mention this. Uh, Bell telephone systems also had a prototype of the princess phone, which made its debut in the house of the future in 1957, and it was uh, you know it had great success once it was introduced to the public in 1957. And I think most people, when they see the picture of the princess phone, will go, oh, you know, my parents had one of those. Or, you know, they'll re they'll remember the shape of it. Uh, but um, it, it was introduced in 1959, but it really didn't like penetrate into households until the early 60s, you know. And uh, so, you know, this was this was uh, this house was showcasing, you know, new products. Uh, Zenith, uh, you know, I have some photos of, uh, you know, cutting edge televisions, you know, Zenith televisions, they were throwing, you know, the latest model into the house, yeah. uh, you know, uh, at various points. So, you know, it, it, it was it was a big experiment uh, to see what people reacted to. How much did this house cost, Dave? Uh, honestly, I have no idea. Uh, you know, uh, I I really don't. Um, I never really got into the dollars and cents on what it cost uh, to to actually build this prototype. Yeah. But I'm I'm imagining with all the research and uh, you know the 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 prototype uh, uh, bents or wings that they had to because they yeah. they created they created a wing. Uh, which was made by a boat manufacturer in Huntington, Long Island. Uh, he made, you know, that boat builder made the test pens, mm -hmm. which were then used uh, for stress testing. Yeah. You know, they put it through some rigorous stress testing. And then the actual bents for the house that was going to be, that was constructed at Disneyland, the, those bents were made by a boat manufacturer in New Jersey. Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, you know, there was hundreds of thousands of dollars in 1950s dollars, yeah. uh, you know, spent on this, uh, to, to get this prototype built. You talked about stress tests, you know, over the course of a decade that this attraction was open, it ha it housed or saw about 20 million visitors. Um, that's a lot of visitors, Dave, uh, you know, uh, the house seemingly held up okay, didn't it? I mean, uh, I mean, you know, it, it, it's amazing in the 10 years that the house was at Disneyland, it settled less than a quarter of an inch. Unbelievable. The, the, the bents and, and you got to realize, you know, Southern California, you know, hot summers, you know, you have hundred, 110 degree days during the summer. And then you have, you know, cold winters, cold nights, you got these great temperature changes happening and those bents only settled a less than a quarter of an inch, which, which is way less than a normal house settles. Right. Well, having all that visitor, all the visitors, the, just the, the, the nature of just being out there exposed to the elements and exposed to people. Were there any other 
unforeseen issues that, that came up because of the way the house was constructed or just unforeseen things about putting appliances or, or putting things together? Uh, the, what were the pitfalls of, of building something like this at the park? Well, I think I think the only pitfall really was uh, John Hench talked about um, uh, having to put the house at an odd angle so that you could see it from the hub. Uh, and, you know, part of that was softened with the fact that they put a pond in, uh, which it, they needed to do because the utilities for the house required a water source, a source, yeah. uh, for, uh, cooling. Yeah. And so, uh, they used the pond as that water saw a source. Yeah. And, and so. It, it's it's interesting, um, you know. The John wasn't as happy with the, the the placement, the angle of the house as he would have liked to have been, but he he was able to adapt and and make do. That's the the name of the game. I mean, he was one of the best at it. So so having that, um, what was the opening like, Dave? Uh, the, what was the reaction of critics and? And the people when they first opened this house of the future, uh, I you know I think it was uh, a very positive opening. Um, I cited uh, in the text that uh, you know during uh, let's see, uh, I just wanted to be clear on this, but uh, the you know the house uh, when it opened to the public by the week of August twelfth to the eighteenth of 1957, more than a half a million visitors went through the attraction. My goodness. Right. And by September 1st, so it's like now two months after it opened, that number swelled to 681,994 people. Mm. Right. Mm. So you had, you know, by the end of the 10 years, you had over 20 million people had gone through the house. Uh, which I think is pretty phenomenal. And, you know, you had, um, you know, there were comments, uh, the, you know, again, this is from the research that I did on a professional level, 150 members of the Orange County, California Builders Association and the American Institute of Architects were given a special tour on Monday, August 19th. And their reaction, their reaction uh, were the reactions were described as very favorable. Uh, I know that's not a lot, but that's what I gleaned out of some documentation, you know, and uh, but it was funny, though, because I did talk to, uh, you know, I I did talk to some people who went through the actual uh, house to get their impressions of it. And 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 (laughs) one person I I talked to uh, who's an attorney here in Southern California, he said, I visited the House of the Future in 1961 when I was seven years old. And uh, and he said, and I was bored to tears. All I wanted to all I wanted to do was go on uh, uh, was the e-ticket rides. But my parents loved the house. And, and that's what I heard from a lot of uh, a lot of people who were kids when they went there. 
uh, they really talked about the fact that they wanted to go on all these rides, but their parents loved going through the house of the future and the possibilities. And that's what it was about. It was about inspiring people with what the possibilities of the future were. You know, I mean, the 1950s was an age of optimism, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the major world war was behind them. Uh, this was, you know, people were moving out to the suburbs. Uh, there were housing developments being built all all over the country and there, and there was this exodus from the city centers into into the suburbs and you know this was the what the possibilities could be 20 or 30 years into the future it is amazing to see that happen but you're absolutely right dave i mean when you're a kid that's all you want to do is ride those rides and and get on get on the astro orbiter or do something like that and then here your parents are going through a home tour but it's funny how things have changed now. I love going to see the Parade of Homes and getting inspired by all the new stuff that you can find in the art and, yeah. and everything in the, uh, the engineering feed of it all. Architecture. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and, and by the way, somebody had written a poem about the house of the future. Oh, is that right? Yes. And I, and I've reprinted it in the book. I see it. It's, it's, it's very cool. I'm going to, I'm going to go read it. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. When it's made out of plastic, embellished with chrome. You order by catalog, choose your design, say HRS 5662109, and they mash up some soy, which they pour in a mold. Then when it's been heated and pressed, mark it sold. In fact, we have heard they plan bookshelves and stairs and beds with sheets on and tables and chairs, all molded together to come out as one and fixed to stay put when the plastic is done. Oh, I see in the future a man and his spouse who live in a marvelous all-plastic house. He's shaving himself, standing short and then tall, with a razor that's molded right into the wall. And she, well, she's riding her child up I'm sorry. <laughs> and she, well, she's writing her child up at camp, but not with a pen, with a neat rubber stamp. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> great, great poem, Dave. <laughs> no, but I, 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 mean, thought, I thought that was kind of funny. It, it was is, obviously they were being sarcastic. No, but. I mean, it's it's great though. I mean, these little bits and bobs you put in the book. Um, and I know your partner in crime did a, a wonderful job at, you know, the, uh, layout and putting stuff together. Um, I, yes, I, I, I want to give a shout out to, uh, my, my beautiful wife, Nancy, uh, who is my partner in crime and she, uh, is a wonderful designer and she designed and laid out this book and, uh, couldn't be happier with, uh, all the work she's done on it. All of the little bits that you've put into this book, Dave, the photos, the pamphlets and everything. I mean, uh, how did you get, get to some of this stuff? I mean, uh, surely 
some of this stuff might be in the archives. I don't even know what's in the archives, Dave. I mean, what are the different sources? I, you, you, you know, so I, I honestly, I, I will tell you that that uh, a lot of this stuff is stuff that, um, you know, you, you really have to be a detective to find this stuff. Um, you know, there was stuff in archives uh, around the country. There was stuff in people's personal collections. Um, there was material in my own personal collections. A lot of the ephemera and things like that, that I had collected over the years, you know, these are, you know, this is all historical stuff. Um, and, and to be able to put it all, you know, in, into one book, you know, I've gotten great reactions from folks who, who just were like blown away that you could do so much just on one attraction. And I've said to people, you could do a deep dive on every single key attraction at the parks and it. come up with a book with, you know, photos and, uh, you know, concept art and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, there's, there's, there is, there is, you know, thousands of stories still that need to be told. Uh, and, uh, you know, these are the kinds of things, these are the kinds of books I think that the fans want to see. They want to see the stuff that they've never seen before. That's why I love this book, Dave. And I love your books. The, this particular book, not only do you have so many just little pieces of memorabilia, the photographs, I feel like, I feel like I was there, Dave. I mean, I, I feel this, you know, at the end of a concert tour, you know, we, we talk about pop culture all the time on this show and I love getting concert, uh, you know, uh, playbills and, you know, all the different concert books and tour books and stuff. I feel like I've been to the attraction just from reading this book because the pictures are so high quality and all the different, uh, pamphlets and, and you've got, uh, architecture and plans and, uh, uh, just dimensions of every little little nook and cranny of this place and i feel like i've been there it's really cool you know i and that's you know i appreciate it i i really wanted to give people that sense that if you you know if you didn't have that the the pleasure of actually walking through that house on your own uh that this might be the next best thing uh and that's that's really what i was hoping for that's that's what made me happy doing this book was it made me feel like i had seen the house even though i never physically walked through it uh but i've experienced it now because and, and by the way the book is laid out um uh exactly how you would would have toured the house if you had walked through it you yeah. know you know from from seeing the adams uh, uh uh adams for living kitchen first and then uh the the um children's uh bedroom uh the parents bedroom the bathrooms the living room you know you go right around the way you would have toured it had you walked through it yeah there's a there's a nice narration um you know, that I think you included in there too, which is kind of cool. I, I, I put the full attraction narration at the back of the book, yeah, it's uh, cool. the welcome to Monsanto's plastic <laughs> home of the future. As you enter this experimental model home, perhaps you've noticed that the house itself is constructed entirely of plastic. Despite, <laughs> despite the graceful lightweight appearance of the suspended wings of this house, each one is able to support more than 13 tons. And it goes on. <laughs> and, and by the way, emphasizes hardly a natural material appears in anything like its original state anywhere in this building. 
It sounds like a plastic surgeon. <laughs> but I mean, oh, it's very, very cool. So I mean, the the pictures of Walt are also great in there as well. He seemed to be pleased with the final, uh, you know, the turnout and, and how it, it all worked out, you know, with Monsanto. Um, was that the case? I mean, Walt seemed to be. I, yeah, I, I absolutely think so, because, you know, he um, he certainly was, uh, uh, as we all know, he was a visionary. Um, he was always looking to the future. He was always optimistic. I mean, this was this was one of those uh, attractions that checked a lot of boxes for him. Uh, by the way, there's also a great photo of Lillian Disney yes. uh, in, in the house as well, uh, which I came across and I wanted to include because you don't normally see her in, 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 in the books. No, you know, looking it's, good. It's, it's always Walt, you yeah. know, but um, you know, I wanted to, I wanted people to realize that when Walt was coming through the house, as it was nearing its completion, uh, you know, he had Lillian with him, you know, and they were, they were both wandering through and looking at stuff. So, I have to wonder if anyone lived in that house, you know, just kind of just, you know, let's just live here for a minute. Well, <laughs> you, you know, you know something, uh, somebody, somebody asked me uh, through social media if anybody was able to stay in the, in the house overnight. And uh, as far as I know, no one ever did. Uh, they didn't allow that. But, but I also speculate in the epilogue of the book that wouldn't it be cool if Disney built one of these uh, house of the futures, but with more sustainable materials and new techniques today, you know, like you could do cold molded wood, uh, you could do all kinds of things and still get the same shapes. Oh yeah, uh, sure. But, but, but make it with more um, uh, sustainable materials. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think that'd be great. Yeah, and I think I think it would be fantastic if they built one of these down at Epcot or or you know one of the resorts, maybe the contemporary. They build one off to the side and allow guests to you know uh, stay in it, uh, you know, for you know a night or two or a week or whatever. That would be an amazing experience because that's what you go to Disney for is for those immersive, uh, uh, you know. Um, you know, those immersive, immersive experiences and uh, what could be better than staying in a house of the future, or at least a throwback to the house of the future, but updated um, the legacy of this house, Dave, as we, we kind of wrap up here uh, kind of reverberates to what we're doing today. You know, the technology is here, video phones, flat screen TVs, the use of, you know, these plastics, um, you know, the different things of that nature. Dave. But what is safety, the safety glass? Safety. Glass. Uh, that, w- that was another thing that came out of the safety glass. Safety you know, glass, I, you know, you know uh, the, so there were some things that that did come out of this house that are used in and have been used for decades uh, in buildings. So, you know, it, it, it's it's really uh, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, plastics as structural supports really haven't gained the kind of attract you know traction uh that they would have wanted to um but it, it still opened up the possibilities for designers and architects and and uh whatnot to to experiment and and you know you look at what you know somebody like frank geary did with the walt disney concert hall and these free-flowing you know curved panels 
um, or, you know, some of the, the big architectural structures around the world that uh, deviate from, uh, you know, uh, boxes, so to speak, you know? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, again, it was one big experiment. It was designed uh, for uh, opening up possibilities. And uh, and I think it did that. I think it was very successful. And by the way, it was only taken out of Disneyland. Uh, you know, when pe- people say, well, they closed it because nobody was going. No, people were constantly going to it. The reason why it was removed in 1967, A, Walt had already died and B, uh, they could have kept it there, but Disney wanted Monsanto to con- continue paying the upkeep on it all, yeah. right? Yeah. And Monsanto said, "Well, we just took out the house, uh, we just took out the Hall of Chemistry, and we just put in uh, the Adventure Through Inner Space attraction. We, you know, we don't want to pay for two attractions at the park, and 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 so because Monsanto wasn't going to continue to foot the bill for the House of the Future." They decided to take it out because they were looking at possibly putting a large restaurant in uh, to that space, uh, which never materialized, probably because they didn't get a sponsor for it. And uh, now the area is uh, is used as Pixie Hollow. I guess the last vestige of the the house of the future is that that planter, the last thing. Yes. The, the, and, and the planter, by the way, I talk a little bit about that in the book. Yeah. Uh, to kind of settle the fact that there's some people who are saying that's part of the foundation for the house of the future. And it's actually not the foundation. It's a, it's a portion of a retaining wall that went to the foundation. There you go. There you go. Dave setting it straight. We're trying to set it straight, busting the myth. You know, the, as, as we said that the, the legacy kind of reverberates uh, to this day and, you know, I remember seeing kind of the concept of the dream house innovations, dream house uh, that they had over at Epcot for a number of years. I remember playing electronic drums there and showing off in front of a bunch of (laughs) tourists, which was hilarious. But um, you know, this, this attraction, I guess will just kind of live in the hearts and the minds of, of everybody that did attend. And of course, people like me that never got a chance or yourself, Dave never got a chance to go uh, at least you've been able to document a lot of it, so it feels like we're there. Um, you also were able to uh, see kind of a, inspired by the House of the Future Hotel there uh, over there at the Howard Jones in Anaheim, right? Yeah, you know something? I, I, I wanted to put that section in at the back of the book because as I was working on it, um, I got invited, uh, Nancy and I got invited to spend a night uh, in the Retro House of the Future suite uh, at the Howard Johnson's Anaheim, which is right next to Disneyland. Mm in Anaheim. And, uh, I just thought, you know, Jonathan Whitehead, who's the manager of the Howard Johnson's, which we all call Hojo's Hojo's Anaheim, um, uh, had this idea to do this retro house of the future suite. And he did an absolutely spectacular job on it. In fact, I show some photos of the suite and some photos of the, uh, house of the future. 
attraction at Disneyland and show how close he was able to match artwork and uh, some of the uh, furniture pieces that are in the uh, in the house. Even even that uh, television, uh, he he actually did a beautiful. He had he had a frame fabricated that mimics that shape uh, of the you know oscilloscope television uh in the uh in the house of the future attraction uh he had a he had a frame done that he then puts a flat panel into the interior of and, and it's very effective because um it it really evokes um those images for you uh and so i wanted to put that in there because what was so cool about staying in there was was again the immersive experience of this is what it might have been like you know, uh, just being in that suite was very cool, you know, and, and a lot of that architecture falls into what's known as Googie architecture. Mm. Um, and, and you can see examples of it all over Southern California. And I, I talk a little bit about that and some of the elements that are in the retro house of the future at Hojo's. But, you know, again, it was all about trying to capture that. Uh, attraction uh, as close as I could and trying to experience it as close as I could. So between my book, which by the way, they're carrying at the Hojo's in ah, Anaheim. Ah, there you go. Yeah. They're, they're, it's going to be an avail available in their uh, mid mod uh, gift shop uh, at the hotel. But uh, you know, between the suite and the book, I really feel like I, I, I you know, I've experienced it. Uh I think it's it's amazing, Dave, and that's great that you're able to do that. I would love to one day visit the Hojo and stay there at that suite one of these days. I'll have to give him a call. But, Dave, congratulations to you and this awesome book, The House of the Future. Walt Disney, MIT, and Monsanto's Vision of Tomorrow. You can check it out for by Bob Weiss, by the way. So many of our great guests have been um, quoted on this book. Uh, Alan Coates in here. You've got uh, Eddie Soto in here as well. Of course, Bob Weiss doing the uh, the introduction, the foreword. Dave, congratulations on the book. You can get it now at your favorite bookstore. If they don't have it, demand it. And uh, you can also get it on Amazon as well as uh, DaveBossert.com. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for talking to us about this awesome release. Congrats. Absolutely. And I just want to mention they can get signed copies of the book at the oldmillpress.com. Ah, yes. Signed copies. Signed copies. Do it. Do it now. Dave, thanks a lot. Thank you, Al John. Hi, this is Michelle in Pasadena, California, and I'm listening to the Skull Rock Podcast. Your attention, please. Now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. I mean, like a thunderous whirlwind in and out of the studio. Dave Bossert, that was just one heck of a one heck of a guest. Dave, what do you think about Dave? Well, you know, I, I thought uh, he was uh, very insightful in his uh, conversation uh, about the House of the Future book. Yes. And uh, I hope we have him back again at some point in the future. That would be great. I, th- I mean, what a wonderful guest. I mean, and he left the green room all stunningly beautiful and vacuumed and he cleaned up after himself. I mean, it's a first for the Skull Rock podcast. 
So, uh, <laughs> so he not only does he win a great award for this book, and I can see it, I can foresee it in the, the future. I am omnip- uh, omnipresent. I can see it in multiple universes and multiple realities. But he's also just a very clean, neat, tidy guy. I like that. Uh, well, thank you, Al John. Go- I, you know, something I, I always have fun uh, doing this podcast with you, and and also just being introduced to the whole podcast community over the years. Yeah. Uh, you know, everybody helps one another. You know, I I, I did an interview last week with the guys uh, on the Hyperion yep. uh, podcast, and uh, you know, I've got more coming up, and it's just really. Uh, a great community of people. And I, and I just want to put a shout out to all of them and say that I appreciate them very much. And I appreciate you, Al John, oh. for being a partner with me on this, uh, Skull rock podcast. Oh man. It, it's an honor and just such a great joy. It's a, one of my favorite times of the week where I get to chill out with you, Dave, and we get to talk about pop culture and this week having to talk about your amazing book, uh, don't forget to get the House of the Future book there at Old Mill Press or at your local bookstore. If they don't have it, uh, demand it and be but be nice. Be nice when you demand it. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I was going to say it actually drops next Tuesday. Uh, it'll start shipping from the online retailers and be available as of October 17th from your local bookstores. Awesome. So if they don't have it, ask your local independent bookstore to order it for you uh, because they can, Uh, they can order it and get it in in a couple of days. And, uh, and then, you know, if you want to get it from Barnes and Noble online or Amazon or books, a million, you know, go to their websites where, wherever you like to buy your books, uh, please help support uh, your local bookstores, especially. Yes, and uh, we'll put links in the show notes so you can check it out, Dave. I have something to say. You know, the new iPhone came out, and mm-hmm. uh, my iPhone is going crazy. It's going crazy. Is it, on, is it on fire? I hear the new iPhone 15 is getting super hot. Well, I don't have a new iPhone. I have an older iPhone. The older iPhone, I don't know what's wrong with it. I haven't been able to listen to podcasts for two weeks, Dave. Mm. I have not been able to listen to podcasts for two weeks. That's why I've been listening to Audible. And our podcast is available on Audible. um, But I just have not been able to stream it. So uh, I've had had to listen to it via the PC. So that's another way for everyone to listen. But I tell you what's going to help us out is that we remind everybody to go to our... Uh, our page there at skullrockpodcast.com or you can check us out on anchor or any one of our different podcasts and please like share and subscribe to our show we would certainly appreciate it leave us those five star reviews my goodness uh we certainly would appreciate it uh we're on all the socials uh facebook x linkedin uh both of us are on linkedin uh, i'm on instagram as well dave's on instagram reach out and say what's up we'd love to hear from you drop us those emails if you will dave at skullrockpodcast.com or aljohn at skullrockpodcast.com and a quick plug um, we drop two episodes of Dining at Disney every week and I know that Dave uh, you and I have got to set a time so we can talk about your books there at Dining at Disney uh, that we do every year so uh, we'll be on the lookout for that I'm looking uh, forward to it I love talking with uh, you and Kristen and Bubba yeah yeah it's going to be a lot of fun and uh, I will say this so once again, as you like and share and subscribe to the show, uh, just just put in those comments. We really do appreciate it. Every little bit helps out for sure for Skull Rock Podcast. Dave, you've got the final word. 
Well, I want to let everybody know that this coming Friday, October 13th, yes, Friday the 13th, um, I will be at the El Capitan screening of The Nightmare Before Christmas with Don Hahn. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, so I'm really looking forward to that. It's been a couple of years since I've done the El Capitan with Don Hahn. Uh and uh, this is the 30th anniversary. Friday the 13th is the kickoff screening of The Nightmare Before Christmas at the El Capitan in Hollywood, California. And uh, right afterwards, I'm going to be doing a uh, book signing in the theater shop. Uh, they have this little shop uh, right off the, you know, right next to the lobby. And I'll be in there signing Nightmare Before Christmas books. So I hope you'll pop by Friday, this Friday the 13th uh, and uh, see the movie. And by the way, in 4D, Al John. What? It's, yes, a Nightmare Before Christmas in 3D plus the 4D is the uh, in-theater stuff, like oh, the, yeah. uh, the snow the machines snow machine, and all the, the, uh, the lighting and all of that stuff. So I'm excited about that. So I'll be at the El Capitan on uh, Friday the 13th. Hopefully you'll check it out. And with yeah. that, I will just say to everybody, go out, have a fantastic week, and we'll see you back here next Monday right here on the Skull Rock Podcast. I'm Al John Go, co-host of the Disney List Podcast as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel vacations for people all the time give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves well i can do all of the legwork for them i have expertise i've been to the disney parks well over a hundred times so they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next disney cruise Disney Park Trip, Adventures by Disney. They can contact me at theme parks and cruises at gmail.com. <laughs>